Open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. title of today's sermon is The Primacy of Preaching and the Priesthood of All Believers. It's a mouthful. I'll read it, pray, we'll get into this. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken, that we can know you. And Lord, right now we need to hear from you. We need, uh, we need to be reminded of the good news of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we just come before you and we ask, Lord, would you visit with us? Would you give us your spirit? Would your presence be here? Would you help me to faithfully teach your word, God? And would you give us exactly what we need? Would this be our bread today? Uh, Jesus, thank you that you're alive Thank you that you're worthy of all of our hope and all of our trust. So, Lord, lift our hearts, lift our eyes to you. For this all in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So I want to quickly begin by recasting some of the vision of the book of Acts so that we can understand where we are, where are we in the story, and understand where we are going. So the book of Acts is the biography. It's the biography of the church. It's the biography of the church. And we could rightly say that Acts 1a acts as the programmatic verse. You guys say programmatic verse? Programmatic verse of the book of Acts. Uh, It lays out, here's where the entire book is going. Here's the summary statement of it. And Acts 1a, it is this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So the Holy Spirit will come, thus you'll receive power. And the apostles, the disciples are going to be the witnesses to and of Jesus in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And if Acts 1-8 is the programmatic verse of Acts, we could, we could make a good case, rightly say that actually Matthew 16 verse 18 is like the programmatic verse of the entire New Testament. If you remember Matthew 16, Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi looking out and he asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says to him, you are the Christ. You are the son of God. 
And Jesus says back to Peter, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, on what you have said, your confession of me, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the story in the New Testament is that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the son of the living God and all that entails to the end that Christ will build his church. He will build his church and not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. That one day people of every tongue and tribe and nation will gather around the throne of Jesus and worship him and sing to him that the knowledge of the glory of God will one day cover the earth, fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so the story of Acts, it's the biography of the church such that Christ's disciples will receive power from the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses in all of these places, in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth so that Christ's church was built throughout the entire world, that all the nations would know the name of Christ and what he's done. That beautifully sets us up for the situation we encounter in Acts chapter 6. It begins out with good news. There's a good report. Acts 6 verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. So it's like, oh, okay, some good news. The church is increasing. The disciples are making more disciples as Jesus told them to do. They're in Jerusalem. The church is growing. Acts 1 is playing out. That whole part of you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's playing out and that's working. And then conflict comes. And then conflict comes. The verse continues, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So for my studies, it appears that in the sixth chapter of Acts, there was a first century phenomenon going on of church drama. Church drama going on. Never, never before. It's so nice because we don't have to deal with any of that now ourselves. Right? No drama in the church. We sing all the songs you like every Sunday. We're happy all the time. Everything's to our liking. Um, it's funny because... In a lot, of, some commentaries will be written. They're called expositional commentaries, so they're sermons put together. So you read like some old sermons on the Book of Acts. Uh, from from time to time, that's what I'll read in preparation. And so there's pastors reflecting from like the 80s, and they're like, you know what this is? This is the worship wars. And they start talking about this, like got to sing the hymns, people praise chorus. I'm like, man, that I don't know those terms too well. But then they also start talking about, or it's like the carpets. And it's kind of like, you can tell like when somebody is talking to you and they're like, you know what I'm talking about, the carpets. And I'm like, I don't really know. So I was kind of looking up and figuring out. And many churches have split over the color of carpet that's put down. It's like, we got to put some new carpet in. It's going to be red. Are you kidding me? We're going to put red carpet. How is that going to honor the Lord? Red carpet in the house of God? And so I think that's why we just totally eschewed all of that. And we're like, no, we're going stained concrete floors. We're in a warehouse. None of that. Wherever we are next, I don't know if we're going to have carpet ever. We're going to dodge those bullets. But what's going on here, uh, what's going on in the book of Acts, in the natural view of things is that there are Hellenists or Greek-speaking Jews, and then there are Jewish Jews. 
And what's going on is the Greek Jews seem to have their widows neglected when the church would give out a daily distribution of food to the widows who, don't, who aren't able to provide for themselves. This obviously, it's not, this isn't right. And so there's a complaint or a murmuring. There's rumblings of discontent. That's what's going on from the natural view of things. And it makes sense. Something wrong is going on. So people start complaining and murmuring and there's discontent going on. But what we need to recognize, what we need to recognize is the church of Christ. It's not only a natural thing going on, but the church of Christ is actually, in fact, under attack by the demonic forces of this world. The gates of hell stand in the way. Satan is after the church. Satan is after the church. In the book of Acts, the book of Acts, the church comes up against the gates of hell in many different ways. Uh, John Stott, a great commentator, he, he uh, summarized them in three different categories, three different categories. And these are the satanic schemes that we see in the book of Acts. And they kind of repeat themselves if you go through it. So the first thing, the first way Satan will try to work is just straight out persecution from without. We've seen this already in the beatings, right? The disciples speak the name and then they just get beat. He wants to quench God's church. He wants to kill it, to steal, destroy. So he has them persecuted. It's going to escalate as time goes on. You're going to see a first, our first martyr in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6. But if he can't, if he can't quench God's church, if he can't squelch it with persecution from without, then he works hypocrisy from within. Hypocrisy from within. We've seen this in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, right? If it's not from without, it's from within God's own church. That Ananias and Sapphira, what was their sin? Their sin wasn't like that they held back a couple pennies from God. No, their sin was that they sold their land and then they told everyone, we gave it all, we gave it all to the church while they held it back. Revealing something really wicked in their own hearts that they fear what man thought more than God, that they rather look good in front of man than look good in front of God. And even in Acts chapter 5, it's interesting that Peter, Peter says to them, why has Satan filled your heart? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Hypocrisy from within. Well, lastly, if Satan can't get the church with persecution from without, if it's not going to be hypocrisy from within, then it's going to be division amongst the church. He's going to go to the strategy, divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. And so the way it works is this. If it's not from without, it's not from clearly hypocrisy within, then Satan is going to come alongside, aid our own natural annoyances and grievances with each other right? He's a wise foe. He's cunning. He's going to look at the things that annoy us and just add lighter fluid to that fire. That's what he's going to do. If Jesus prayed that we would be one in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, then, then Satan's task is going to be to divide us. If the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, the things that are against the Spirit, Satan is going to come alongside to embed and aid hatred, enmity, strife. Those are the things that he will try to work. So we need to be wise to our enemy. We, we like have to reckon that we don't struggle against flesh and blood. Like that's really 
truly not our struggle. Our, our war in this world, it's not against like the other religions. It's like, it's not against those people. It's not against Muslims. That's not our enemy. It's not left-leaning or right-leaning politics. That, that is not the enemy, but that the satanic forces are our enemy. Those, that would, those things that would bait our flesh, that would be tempting to us, that would give us over to the desires of the flesh and not of the spirit. So we need to soberly examine our own hearts. And like within the church, we have to cleanse ourselves from our own hypocrisy, right? We like stand firm against persecution. And then if he's going to try to work hypocrisy, then dude, we got to like examine our own hearts. Like what's, what is the sin we have in our own lives that we need to kick out, that we need to repent of before going and naming all the sins of the culture? Like, hey, how are we doing? How are we doing? Are we getting the logs out of our own eyes before trying to get the little speck out of the culture's eye? Are we doing that? Are we a people that are wholly devoted to God that say, you know what? My time, my money, my body, it's all God's. He has say over all of it. Is there anything in our own lives that we live as if we are the God of our own lives? If so, we need to repent of that. We need to repent of that. It's a satanic scheme to divide the church, to solely it. That if sin is like leaven, it's just a little leaven. That it's a little yeast that just corrupts the whole church. We need to repent of the sin in our own church. And we need to be aware that our grumblings, the things that when you step into church, the person you see, the anoints you have, the song we don't like, whatever it is, those grumblings within the church are unchecked, left unchecked, used for satanic purposes. They really are. But with all this talk of Satan's schemes and all these different things, we need some encouragement. And the encouraging thing, though, is that the church is going to respond with wisdom and dodge Satan's attack. And then Satan's just going to go back to square one. And that's kind of encouraging. It's like, okay, he's, he doesn't have an endless playbook. Like, he kind of goes back to a few of the same different plays. That, okay, they dodge the division. They keep themselves on God's calling to them. And so then he just ratchets up persecution. You were going to see the first martyr in the book of Acts chapter 7. So our foe is cunning, but we have effective weapons for tearing down spiritual strongholds. So uh, let's see how they handle the division within the church. Starting at verse 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. I'm just going to be honest with you guys right here. Okay, just say it fast, say it confident, and we'll move on. There's a couple of these I'm not too sure about. Okay? <laughs> just got to be honest with you. Prochorus, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenaeus, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch, these they set before the apostles. And they prayed and laid hand, their hands on them. 
So if you ever wonder, why, why are we laying hands on people? It's the way the church has been doing it since we've existed, right? There's things in your own family like, why do we do this? Ah, we just do this. God told us to do it, so we do it, okay? So two things within here that we see. There are two things we see uh, with how the apostles deal with division in the church. And the first is that they recognize we must, we must not give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And what we're going to classify that is that there is in God's church a primacy that is a place of first importance of preaching. There is primacy of preaching in the church of Christ. And secondly, and secondly they say, but, but we've got to do this stuff, so let us appoint others in the church to do this duty. And that's, that's what we're going to classify under the umbrella of the priesthood of all believers. So, if the book of Acts is a book of our heritage that is meant to both inform us, give us information, teach us about our own history, as well as form us, as well as shape us and give our formation as a church, then we have to insist along with our forefathers and the women that went before us that there is a place of primacy in the church of Jesus Christ for preaching the word. There is a place of primacy for preaching the word. The temptation, the temptation that had to have happened for the apostles was to give up their calling, to give up their calling to teach the word, to do good things, to do good things, like help widows. But they resisted that. And the church, we have to still say today that the church of Jesus, we must preach and we must preach the gospel. And it's hard because it's like, Man, in a world full of so many needs, does that still stand? Does that still stand? It's been hundreds, it's been thousands of years since the church started. And there are so many needs among us. Like, is there still a place of primacy for preaching the word of God? Well, I think we have to agree with what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. In my favorite book on preaching ever, Preaching and Preachers, he said this. The primary task of the church and of the Christian minister is the preaching of the word of God. So yes, there are a million needs in the world. And yes, there is a place for this in the church. And we're going to get to some of these different things. But there is a primacy of preaching for the church. Brothers and sisters, we have this book. We have this book. That is God breathed. And we have to do, we must do what only the church can do. We are the only ones with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're the only institution in the entire universe that will never die. Do you realize that? That Christ promised my church will be built and the gates of hell will not prevail. The church will never die and we're the only institution that has the saving gospel. We're the only institution with the saving message without which the world will die. We must preach the gospel. And there's a biblical precedent for this. So please turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3.
So 2 Timothy is a letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who, who's like a son to him. He loves Timothy. He's raised him up in a lot of ways in the Lord. He's seen him become an elder at the church of Ephesus. He's raised him up. And Paul's ending nearing the end of his life. And there's got to be a thousand different thoughts and concerns that Paul has. Imagine, imagine what are your dying words going to be to someone who's going to step in and take over some of the tasks that you have? Well, I want us to notice as we read this, the flow of the passage, okay? Because we're going to see a really familiar verse, and then I want to see us to see what it directly leads into. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. So do you see the connection? Do you see the connection between our view of the Bible and our practice of preaching? Right? Paul is describing what the Bible is, and here's what he says. He actually says that scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God. He says, he says it's theopanousas, okay? And that's not like crazy. You guys, you guys already know what that means, right? Paul literally makes up a word. He combines two different words, and he puts them together, and what does he say? He says it's theos. theos. So what does theos mean? You guys know this. God, God, theology, these different things, right? So, and then what's panuma? What's panuma? Anybody know? Breath, spirit, wind, right? So he says, he puts them together. He's like, when describing this book, man, it is God breathed. It's God's breath. He gave this to us. That is what this is. In the original chapter divisions, the big number you probably have between these two verses, between these verses, that big four, they're really, really helpful most of the time. But sometimes, some, every once in a while, we like kind of divide things arbitrarily where the chapter wasn't there originally. So he's saying, hey, look, it's all God breathed. Therefore, therefore, I have to tell you this. This is what I'm saying. He says, look, Timothy, all of this is God's word. It's inspired. It's profitable. And he gives them a charge. At the end of Paul's life, which I have to imagine, man, he knows the church in Ephesus. He knows, he knows of the family that's just in shambles. He knows of this person who has this need and all these different things. And he's going he's gonna to give him some instructions about some specific people. But is the, at the end of his life, what is Paul's enduring message to Timothy? He charges him. He says, I charge you. Hear this, Timothy. In the presence of God, evoking that we, what I'm saying right now to you is before God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living 
and the dead. He has all authority and power. And by his appearing, that Timothy, there's coming a day you are really going to see Jesus and his kingdom. And he's not going to be alone. It's going to be his full kingdom. In light of all of that, I charge you, preach the word. And so we must preach. The church must preach. We must preach because salvation is found in no other name than Jesus. There is no other name by which men must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. And we must preach because men and women are perishing without the gospel. And we must preach because we believers, not just for the outside world, but we believers, we have a natural tendency to to drift from the truth of God's word. That there's a way that seems right to us, but in the end it leads to death. That we consistently, constantly, Sunday after Sunday, in our daily time need to sit under the word of God. We must preach because the Lord has said that the nations one day, they will be glad The nations will be glad, but the means of them being glad is by them hearing the preaching of the gospel. And we must preach because we have found treasure from heaven. And we must preach, we must preach because I'm not, I'm not ignorant that There comes Sundays and people come into this place and have marriages that are just on the brink of collapse. And some of you guys have family members that are dying, that some of us are so so caught in sin, we can't see a way out, that there are so many complex situations in this room that I don't have the ability to fix any, that not one of us has the power ourselves to fix any of them. That there are people who are just hurting in this room right now. And we must preach because we need to know that 2,000 years ago, that 2,000 years ago, a man in the Middle East was born. And that And that he said he came, they said he came to take away the sins of the world. And because no one has ever loved like this man loved. And no one has ever done the kinds of miracles he's done. And because he he died on a cross, he was crucified. And he said he did it for our sins. But we must preach because there is no place in the entire world, no cave, no tomb, nowhere in which these, this man's bones are. We must preach because Jesus has risen from the dead. And that is our hope. We must preach because that is our only hope. That we need to, we need to rise above just the felt needs we have of a week and we need to lift our eyes to heaven and we need to remember man Jesus rose from the dead and that changes absolutely everything and I don't know how how anything's going to be fixed in the next 24 hours but I know there's coming a day where he's going to make everything new and he's going to right every single wrong and so we must preach 
so that the glory of God would shine through his word by proclaiming the gospel. And some of you, some of you may feel called to, to preach, to go and preach to the nations that have never heard the gospel. And you need to obey that. And thank God you're in a church at this time who is feeling the call of God to say, yeah, we got to go and we got to send people to do that. So if you are feeling that call, you must obey him. And so there have always been those in the church who are called to preach the word and they must not abandon their post. They must not. The primacy of preaching, however, it does not, like it just cannot. It cannot lead to pew potatoes, right? The primacy of preaching, rightly done, it doesn't leave people in their seats. But instead, it leads us to see the priesthood of all believers. Priesthood of all believers. So the disciples, they said, or the apostles said, okay, we can't give up preaching. We have to do this. This is our call from God. But they say, in light of that, therefore, since we can't abandon our posts, Acts 6 verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So the apostles, they say, yeah, we have to, we have to preach, but also these widows have to be taken care of, right? Because faith without works, it's dead. True religion is taking care of orphans, taking care of widows. We have to figure out a way to do this. So they select seven men of good repute. So why? Why is this account in scripture? Why, why do we have this story before us? Well, we must reckon this. We need, to, we need to believe this, like really believe this, that we, all of us, absolutely all of us, we are called, all of us, to the ministry. Everyone is called to the ministry. The reformers, the reformers came to call this the, the priesthood of all believers, that there isn't a class of people that do God's work and then other people like build tables and like make shoes and stuff. No, we all, all of us serve God in whatever vocation we have and we all advance his kingdom. And so the primacy of preaching, it doesn't, there is a place of first importance for preaching. We can never give this up. We can never give up the calling to preach the word. But that doesn't mean that's the only thing that's important. It's not of only importance. So I think we really need to like start training ourselves. Let's, let's not say things such as he or she is called to the ministry when we mean they're, they're, they're called to be a minister or they're called to be an elder. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. God wants to use you. You are called to the ministry. This means like we as a church staff, we as a church, church staff, we can by no means do everything. Like all the plans that God has for this church, by no means is it like a church staff that can do all of those things. We don't even have the, we don't have, we have like a few gifts that we can use. We don't have enough gifts to do everything. Like you guys have so many gifts that we all need us together to do the work of ministry. In fact, Ephesians, Ephesians says, those with a gift of teaching, what are they supposed to do? Teach, teach the saints for what end? For the equipping for the work of the ministry. Like you teach to equip them to do the ministry. So please, please, 
let's not wait. Let's not wait for an initiative with like the reality logo on it to serve the Lord, right? Let's not wait for like a flyer that just has the reality insignia on it to go and do something for the Lord. Let's, let's let us eat meals with our unbelieving coworkers. Like, let's do that. Let's, let's have barbecues in our neighborhoods. Let's get together to pray. It doesn't have to be an official prayer meeting that's announced. You get a few people together, you pray for the things you need God to do in your life. And know this, you, you are literally, you are literally the best situated and best equipped person to love and share the gospel with those who are in your life. You're, there is no one better suited for that. You can't plug in, in anyone else that would be better suited for that. You are the one called to the people in your life. God has appointed times and places and seasons that we would live. And he did it because he's like, no, I need you working that job. That job you hate, I want you there because I have purposes for you there. I want you to live in this place so you can get to know these neighbors. You are the best equipped person for where you are, for the people that are in your life, to love them, to share the gospel with them. So some will serve by preaching and being devoted to prayer, and they must, like they must. And that's not like the only thing they do, right? Like I'm still planning camps. I still, like we still do other things. It's not like you only do this, but some are called, some are called and will serve by preaching and praying and they must. And some are called and will serve by serving tables and they must do it. They must. Both, both of these are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And this is the kind of ministry that God blesses. This is the kind of ministry that God blesses. Preaching that actually moves people. And what I think we have to capture from the book of Acts is this reality. That to the disciples, to the apostles, it's just ordinary life going on. Division rises up. What are we going to do? They handle it the best they can with the wisdom that they have. And so they appoint a guy named Stephen. And he's going to be an administrator. And he's going to help with the feeding of the widows and these different things. And it seems like, okay, they're doing their ordinary obedience. And yet God is moving in extraordinary ways. God is moving in an extraordinary way. Because Stephen, this Stephen... He's actually going to have people stir up false things said about him. He's going to have people stir up different false things said about him. And it's like, man, what's going on? This guy's just being faithful. And then he's like persecuted in this way. But what actually ends up happening is that Stephen, Stephen shows Jesus to be true to his own words that, hey, don't worry about. Don't worry about what you're going to say when other people, when you stand before kings and governors and these different people, because I'm going to give you the words to say. And Stephen, the administrator, he gives the longest speech in the book of Acts. He like recounts all of Israel's history. That's what he does. And then what do they do? They kill him. They put him to death. The first martyr in the book of Acts. 
And it's like, man, what is happening? Like, I thought we were thriving in Jerusalem. I thought we were doing the Lord's will. I thought this was all going well. But what happens is that God is moving and he is working all things for good, even the schemes of the enemy. Because what's going to happen? Persecution flares up in Jerusalem and people scatter. Where do they scatter to? They scatter to all Judea and Samaria and the gospel goes forth. The church goes on. And so I, I even think, though I'm not sure of all the details, I think this is a prophetic text for us as a church at the, at the cusp of not knowing where we're going to be meeting with a building, right? And there's going to be a lot of temptation, I think, for us to like, have some grumblings like, ah, I don't know about this call. I don't know about that call. And it feels so ordinary. And it feels like, ah, I just don't like this. But we need to, as a church, say, you know what? I'm not going to give into my flesh. And I'm not going to give the devil a foothold to divide this church. And we need to be together on this. For Jesus, wherever you have us as a church, we're going to worship you. And we're going to praise you. Because we know your church is never, ever going to die. And so we take heart. And we even see in the book of Acts, they lose their place to worship. The gospel gets spread and goes to places you could never even imagine it would be going. In two chapters, it, we're in chapter 6 and 7 up to chapter 7. In chapter 8, it's going to start going down to Ethiopia. It's going to go all over the place. It's just going to spread like wildfire. And so we, the church, need to be submitted to each other, properly functioning, bringing the kingdom of God. That brings the gospel to all nations. And so, yes, there are those who are called to preach and there are those who are called to serve tables and it is all ministry and it is all full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And so as we go into second set of worship, let us each ourselves seek, man, Lord, what do you have for me? Like, why do you have me at the place I am? Who's around me? What, what's my role to play? What's my role to play in this, Lord? Because I don't, I don't want to sit here. I know you called me to the ministry. I know you have things for me. Be reminded of the gospel, that Jesus, he's alive. He's coming again. That there will be a day that the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Literally, church, man, they, they trusted God, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you know exactly what we need right now. So God, as we, as we come to you, would we see the beauty of Jesus? Would we see the purpose of our lives, which is to give you glory, to enjoy you? Lord, would you use us as a church? Would you keep us, keep us from the enemy? God, would you cause us to be full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom? Would your gospel go forth? Thank you for the glorious truth we have before us. Would it be an anchor for our souls and would we stay our hearts on you? We love you. 
Christ's name.